We are in week two of what are on the church calendar these prescribed weeks of reflection and preparation and expectation prior to, if you have tickets, celebration, uh, the celebration of the birth of Jesus on Christmas Eve. It's a traditional season on the church calendar known as Advent. And this Advent season, I'm taking you, I'm dragging you with me um, on a different approach to see things that, um, to do things that Christians have done for nearly two millennia now. Two millennia now. When I hear those terms, um, reflection and preparation and expectation, there's one figure in the historical records regarding the birth of Jesus that stands out. And it's because I believe, especially as I've spent time on it over the last bunch of weeks, that she spent most of her life doing just that. Luke, the first century Greek historian, he wrote the most detailed account of Jesus' life and ministry, and he records as much about this one figure when he says on different occasions, that as the events of the first Christmas played themselves out, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she pondered them, she treasured them up in her heart. Why? Well, I think if you enter the story, it's because as these events were unfolding that first Christmas, as the events of Jesus' life were unfolding over the next 33 years, if you were living them along with Mary, they did not make very much sense. For Mary, like most of us, God's plan comes better into focus looking in the rearview mirror than it does through the front windshield. And so in these weeks of reflection, we're reflecting in the rear view with Mary, starting with the end of her life as we did last week and moving backwards all the way to the cradle of her son Jesus on that first Christmas night when we'll celebrate that on Christmas Eve. Now, I'll give you another reason why I think Mary is worth of reflection over the next couple of weeks. We talked about it in the introduction last week. Mary is, in religious circles, quite the controversial figure. In fact, more often than not, she's fought over more than she's reflected on. Some of you are from a Catholic background, the Catholic Church, and uh, the Catholic Church venerates Mary. Uh, they see her, and I'm no Catholic theologian, so I, I want to tread lightly, but they see her as sinless in nature and essence and deed, even in her conception. And yet, when we see Mary through this lens, so much of her humanity, her, her human story that's worth of reflecting on gets lost. The Protestant church, in anchoring our beliefs, not to church teachings or tradition, but to the canonized Bible, where we believe that Mary is portrayed as, well, I think we oftentimes take it too far. We would argue oftentimes, Protestants, that she's quite unremarkable in her nature and essence. The Protestant church oftentimes in our protests seem to forget that these same scriptures, they represent Mary as being, quote, the highly favored one. And in our protest, I think we often rush by her status and we never pause to, well, to do what we're, we're trying to do over these weeks, to, to, along with Mary, to treasure these stories about this very real, at one point, young unwed mother called upon to raise the Son of God, we, we fail to pause and wonder. It's interesting. Given the... I, I love our church. We have folks that gather from all faith traditions here, some from no faith tradition. Some are dedicated followers of Jesus. Others are just interested in knowing more. With all of those faith backgrounds in the room, let me ask you this. If I were 
to, to ask, where would you find in, in either the Catholic tradition or the Bible, you, you choose which one, where would you find these truths, the following truths, that Mary was given a blessed son who was created by God without a father? Where would you find that she was a virgin at the time of Jesus' birth? That she herself was a model of human behavior? Where would you find written that an angel proclaimed to Mary that she had been, quote, chosen by God above all the women of all nations, and that she's to name her child Jesus? Where would I find all of those quotes? Well, the answer is in both Catholic tradition and the Bible, and also in one other remarkable place, the Koran. Did you know that? Where Mary, in, in Islam, the mother of Jesus, is also one of the most honored figures in their theology. My point is simply this. I don't know what religious background you may be from this morning. You may be from no religious background at all. And yet, there was once a woman named Mary that sits at the heart of the greatest religions on earth. Mary, this mother of Jesus, is worthy of pondering and reflecting. And so I want to do that with you. We're working backwards if you were here last week. Last week, we, because it looks so you can figure things out in the rearview mirror a lot better. We, we looked at the death of Mary and, and her later years of life. Today, I want to look at what had to have been the worst moment of her life, the hours she spent at the foot of the cross, upon which her very real son, her little boy, which she bore that first Christmas morning, upon which he was crucified. Here's what Jesus' disciple John tells us. It's why we know she was actually there. She, remember, most of Jesus' followers had gone off and were in hiding. Most of them, at this point, had abandoned him and assumed that all of these things he had told them were mere fancy. Uh, fancy. John says the following, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clophis, and Mary Magdalene. Mary, it's interesting enough, stood at the foot of the cross with friends, two of whom were also named Mary, something that's not all surprising, uh, not at all surprising, since about 50% of Jewish women in the first century were named Mary. So if you read the Bible and you're like, which Mary is this? There's a reason. First, that first, one of her partners there was, was Mary's sister, Salome, who happens to be the mother of the apostle James and John. Second was Mary, the wife of Clophis. We don't know anything about her, but third was Mary Magdalene, quite famously in so many of the stories of Jesus, the one from whom he had, which, which he had um, exercised seven demons. Now, the scene... The scene, the real scene, as it likely went down, is probably a little bit different than you imagine, if you actually have ever imagined what it would be like to watch a mother see her son crucified. The picture is traditionally painted for us with Mary kind of weighed down at the foot of the cross and, and Jesus lifted high up on the cross. Likely, many times, Mary's head barely comes to Jesus' feet. But that is likely not the case. Romans typically crucified their victims only two to three feet off the ground, meaning that that day, that morning, that moment, Mary's pain and her suffering over her beloved son, in my mind, it had to have been even more increased as she was so close to him, yet 
with a complete inability to do anything to help him. She was almost eyes to eye, eye to eye. She was, as we know, Jesus spoke to her. They were so close as this was going on, he could, they could hold a conversation. Can you imagine? This is your son. And Mary stood there, the scripture says, not just for a moment or two and, and, and ran away and hid her eyes. Almost everybody else had left, but not, not Mary and not these women. They chose to stand there. For Mary, I imagine, and if you've ever gone through something like this, she had to be there, even though she didn't want to be there, watching helplessly. It would have been the longest day of her life. You can only imagine the pain and the sorrow, the overwhelming grief. Mary, at this point, is a woman likely in her mid-40s, and she's got to be asking a very human being-type question. One that I think if we would ponder and wonder and enter the story, we would realize that almost every single one of us will ask it sometime in our life. Why? Why, God? Why? Why would, why would you let this happen? Why would you do this? It makes no sense. I mean, at that moment, what what does she have to be thinking? I can't help but wonder if she was worried that maybe she had done something wrong. I would have. That maybe she, maybe this is all happening because of her, something she did. She screwed it all up. She was, she was the mother of promise. She, she had the plan laid out. Nobody else did, and maybe this was all her fault. God had made an incredible promise. She was going to bear a king. He was going to be great, according to the angels. His, his kingdom, she heard, would have no end. This was not greatness. And it certainly seemed like the end. Had she done this? Was she responsible? Why, what did I do? Have you ever asked, what did I do to deserve this? If you have, you have joined the choir of Mary. Could I have prevented it? What mother hasn't asked that question when faced with the suffering of a child? In the midst of all of this, right, lots of confusion, there's got to be anger. I mean, wouldn't you be awfully angry? And yeah, you would be angry at the Romans. Yes, you would be angry at, at, at the Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate. But I think the reality is she had, because she's a human being, she had to have been angry at God. And oftentimes in our anger with God, there comes things like self-justification, right? Like Mary had to be going, why would you do this to me? Why would you let this happen to my son after all I've done for you? I mean, her... His plan, God's plan, had made her the scandal of the town. She was, according to the word on the street, she was now going to be the, the widow, the widow mother that had been raising the bastard child. A woman that had, now with her son crucified, no future, no hope. Wouldn't you at this, at this moment, I mean, perhaps you're better than me, but wouldn't you have been going... I am so I am so mad at you. 
And would there not also have been moments, even in the confusion and the anger, because this, this is a very real and true story. Please don't make this a religious story. Wouldn't there have been moments at the foot of the cross where three decades worth of pondering and treasuring these things up in our heart, right? Especially those moments of the first, at the, the first Christmas. Those had to be running through our mind. I'd have to believe that at the foot of the cross where, where some of it, when some of it began to take shape. For example, some of you know the story. At one point, to alleviate some of Jesus' suffering, he was in agony. Mark writes that, quote, then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. Mary saw that happen. Maybe she even called for it. But is it possible that at that very moment, one of the things that she treasured in her heart from that first Christmas began to to come into a different kind of focus. At Christmas time, we sing We Three Kings. We speak, we tell our children about the gifts that they came bearing to baby Jesus. Matthew records the moment because it's a historical fact. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. They opened their treasures, and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Did she have a momentary flashback? Myrrh. In one way, it's quite a strange gift to give to a child. It, it had been used to make the oil, uh, the oil that they would anoint kings with, that they would use to make things holy. That gift made sense that day to Mary. But now, in light of the cross, it was taking on a very new meaning. Because it was also used when mixed with wine to deaden the pain of those about to be crucified. Myrrh was used to embalm the dead. Was the Magi's gift a sign that God knew her son's fate all along? And even if he did, did it make it all right? I mean, if she stood there for hours... All of those things that she had pondered and treasured and hidden in her heart had to be coming back through her mind. She had to have remembered when, when she was terrified about what Joseph was going to think. The angel had appeared to her first and told her she was going to have this child. She had to have been, been assuming that Joseph was going to abandon her, but she, she might remember that Joseph came running into her home at one point and said, Mary, I had a, I had a dream last night. It was so real. An angel came to me and said that, that I shouldn't be afraid to take you as my wife. And, and he said that you were going to conceive a child, and it wasn't going to be from me. It was going to be from, from the Holy Spirit. Matthew details it like this. She'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. We talked about it during communion. Jesus' name in Aramaic, Yeshua, it means God saves Mary and Jesus were obedient, and they named him Yeshua. But how many times over the years must Mary have pondered the meaning of that name? How would he save their people from their sins? What did it mean? One writer reflecting on that afternoon at the cross said that Mary may indeed have been the first theologian to ponder how Jesus' death was bringing about salvation. But she wouldn't be the last. 
Maybe in all those hours at the cross, maybe, maybe those moments at the manger came back hauntingly and beautifully and frustratingly all at the same time. It was just her and, and Joseph and Jesus there alone in, in that cave surrounded by animals when suddenly a band of shepherds showed up. It had to have proved to her at the time that she and Joseph weren't out of their minds, that, that, that everything they had heard from God individually had now been validated. The shepherds exclaimed to them, an angel had told them, don't be afraid, I bring you good news. Good news, that'll be great joy to all of the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior's been born to you. He's the Messiah, he's the Lord. This will be a sign unto you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great camp company of the heavenly host appeared with an angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Mary had to have been sitting there at the cross going, peace? This is peace? How can this bloody cross, what they're doing to my son, how is this good news to anybody? And how does the death of my, my son bring about peace? What kind of Messiah, what kind of Lord submits to crucifixion at the hands of people who are so in Mary's mind and the reality is we are all participants in the crucifixion of Christ. All of us have sinned to contribute to that day. But in Mary's mind, she's looking around and, and wondering how this is possible, how the, the Lord could submit to the evil of these people. It's interesting. Peace, if you get any Christmas cards, you'll see is one of the most, express, one of the most expressed images of Christmas. It was for those in Israel and for the shepherds and for Mary Peace was on the tip of everyone's tongue that first Christmas. Everyone in Israel had looked forward to the Messiah, what he was going to bring. It was peace. It was what was promised. Israel's great prophet Isaiah had said as much centuries before, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And at this moment, Jesus seemed to be anything but everlasting. And peace... Let's be honest, it had to look like another broken promise. And, and then there's this last one thing at the cross. It, it happened as the afternoon was starting to grow into evening. The, the Roman soldiers, in their desire to move things along, they would usually go and break the legs of those that were being crucified. If you don't know what kills you, um, when you, it, with crucifixion, it's, it's not the wounds or the exposure. You actually die from asphyxia asphyxiation. You, you no longer can hold yourself up enough to, to allow uh, your chest cavity to breathe in air. And so oftentimes, to speed it along, after, they, after everyone they assumed had gotten the message about what happens when you go against Rome, they, they would come through and they would break everyone's legs so that they could no longer push themselves up and breathe anymore. And that was the plan for those three men on the cross that early evening. But when they got to Jesus, he was already seemingly dead. And so John says that, who was standing there with Mary and witnessed it, John says that instead, quote, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And I can't help but wonder if it was at that very moment that, that things began to take incremental shape for Mary with all of the pondering and treasuring. If at that moment she wasn't transported back to another one of those moments at Jesus' birth, 
that Luke literally said she stopped and treasured up in her heart. Some of you know that moment. Maybe you've never related it before. Mary and Joseph had taken Jesus, the, the baby Jesus, to the temple shortly after his birth to do what was prescribed for them to do, um, ceremonial events, including his circumcision. And as they came to the temple, there was an old man there named Simeon. Luke says that Simeon had been waiting at the temple for years for the arrival of the promised Messiah. And when this young family went by him, he was prompted by the Holy Spirit to perceive that Jesus was that Messiah. And so he runs up. Again, a very real, a real story. Enter the story. You, you are Mary and Joseph. Everything is going pretty much as prescribed. I mean, yes, he was born in a manger, and that didn't make a lot of sense. But, but everything else, I mean, we had the shepherds and the angels and all the rest. And now Simeon runs up, and he grabs the baby from their arms. And he speaks very famous church words. If you've been around the church uh, long enough, they're, they're referred to sometimes as the nunc dimittis, chanted in Christian worship liturgies over the centuries. Luke records what Simeon said like this. He said that Simeon took him in his arms, this young child, kind of pulls him away from Mary and Joseph, and he praises God, and he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That liturgy, that song, often sung at this time of years in various churches, goes something like this. Now, Lord, let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. Beautiful words. Simeon thanking God that he's lived just long enough to see the Messiah. But it's interesting. As famous in church history as those words are, they didn't stop there. Simeon kept talking. He just said things that we don't really want to hear. And so we tend not to drop them into liturgy or song. After he got done with the beginning part, Luke records, I love the detail, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. You know, when your, your teacher tells you how smart your kid is, right? Like, oh, isn't he wonderful? I mean, it's all just, this is, they've got to be thinking, right? Like, I'm the, we are the chosen parents of the Savior of Israel. Think about, oh, I mean, we are just going to be nothing. This is going to be nothing but buttercups and whatever the saying is, right? And then, as they beamed with pride, this is a crazy story. They're beaming with pride. Simeon, Simeon kind of brings down the baby and soon hands him back to Mary and catches her eye and Here's what, what Luke records. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Hmm. If you're Mary, I'm sure you're going, well, what do you mean? Wait. I'm not sure I like the sound of that. I mean, I thought... I thought this was going to be the king. And then, maybe even more disturbingly, and maybe that afternoon at the foot of the cross, these words came hauntingly back. Then I can't help if he, he, he just really 
stared into her eyes deeply, and he looked at Mary, and he said, and a sword will pierce your soul, too. Peace on earth, the angels declared. The prince of peace, Isaiah prophesied. But Simeon shows up on the scene and declares something seemingly quite different. Something about a sword. Tim Keller has a pretty famous quote in this regard, because peace is not all that simple. He asks, how does a surgeon bring peace to your body if you have a tumor in it? The surgeon, uh, the surgeon spills your blood. He cuts you open because this is your only path to health. How does a therapist help a downcast, depressed person? Often she does it by bringing up the past, getting the patient to confront painful memories and terrible feelings. The surgeon and the therapist often have to make you feel worse before they can make you feel better. This is indeed why Jesus, the Prince of Peace, would go on to declare himself. And I can't help, I mean, I, you'd have to imagine that Mary shared these words with Jesus at some point during his life, right? Maybe this explains why Jesus said quite famously, although we don't talk about it a lot, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The sword was now, as Simeon had predicted, piercing the soul of his own mother. What did Jesus mean when he said this? What was it Simeon was predicting? Well, my guess is that many in, in Israel thought that the Messiah was going to bring peace the old-fashioned way. Yeah, he was going to bring it by sword, and it was going to be swords being swung at enemies. Rome had been occupying Israel at this point, and when Rome would conquer every land, they would say, welcome to the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. How did Rome bring peace? By crushing its enemies. Jesus' peace, too, does come by the sword, but... But Simeon revealed that it comes in two very different ways, two very uncomfortable ways. The first can be seen in his words regarding Jesus being someone spoken against. If you would simply look back at the history of the world, just like any peacemaker, Jesus is going to make people mad. The first part of Simeon's prophecy is that Jesus will, call falling, will cause falling and rising, and it'll be a sign spoken against. In other words, people are going to be polarized by this guy, and many of them are going to oppose him. He's going to cause problems, conflicts. John, who stood there at the foot of the cross, years later, he would write this regarding Jesus. This is the verdict. John's an old man now. He's looking back at what he's seen over all these years. Well, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. People love, including your beloved pastor, people love darkness. We don't like our hearts exposed. I like you to think I'm the good guy you see up here every Sunday morning. I like to be judged based on what I show, what I put out there, how, how I act, what I do. But this Jesus seems bent on exposing hearts, not deeds. John would go on, he goes, everybody who does evil hates the light. They don't come into the light because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. Notice the strong language. We're not indifferent to exposure. We hate it. We hate it. We hate it enough to kill, to crucify those who dare expose us. 
Have you ever watched a Dateline on NBC? But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it might be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. See, the problem that all of us have with Jesus at one level or another, right, is that in the light of his truth, I am the way and the truth, in the light of his truth, he exposes all of us for the phonies we are. How far from God, how unholy we are, how deeply flawed and broken and need of a savior we are. I'll, I'll give you an example of this. It happens to me all of the time, and it's really, because I'm, I'm so deeply flawed and so deeply in need of a savior too, but it happens to me all the time. I, I'll, I'll make friends with somebody or I'll be out somewhere. <laughs> it, it tends to happen at airports and planes for some reason all the time. Um, I'll be talking to somebody, and, you know, they'll be talking like a, a regular human being, right? Which often includes telling me stories um, about various things, you know, different things that they're up to in their life. Those stories usually will take on colorful language. And then eventually, um, it, the question that as soon as, and by the way, the worse the story is, right? And I could tell you something. There's a couple of times in airports where I can't believe these stories were actually happening where I'm sitting there going, I can't believe this is happening right now. Like, I, and I know what the next question is going to be, right? I know it. You know what the next question is going to be? What do you do for a living, right? And so I always know it's coming. And the dirtier the conversation, the more I know it's coming. And it always comes. What do you do for a living? <laughs> and I go, I'm a pastor. And that's, I don't get laughter, I get like. <laughs> and do you know what the next words are? Every time. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, right? Like it's like somehow I forced a confession out of them or something, right? <laughs> I, I am a very flawed messenger of the light of Jesus. Too often in my life and in yours, I'm guessing, we put the light under the proverbial bushel. Because I don't like it when people do that to me. You know why? Because it makes me feel ostracized. It makes me feel like I'm not included. It makes me feel like I am different. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, can I just tell you something? Here is the truth of the sword of Simeon relative to bringing peace to the world. You are different. You should be different. I should be different. Not in the way I wave a finger at people, though, which is what the church has, has gotten a, a, a reputation for over the years. I shouldn't be the ones that are offending them by my words, necessarily, although there, is, there are moments for that. But I should be the one that when the conversations turn to gossip somewhere, that I don't wave a finger at them and say, gossip, how dare you? I would never participate in such a thing. What if I just shut up and refuse to participate? You ever done that? It gets awkward fast, like, especially if, like, you have somebody just ranting, I'll tell you another thing, blah, 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 blah. And you're just sitting there going, well, yeah, I know, I understand how you've been hurt. Well, aren't you going to join me in bashing them? No. I mean, I could go on and on. When you're the light of Christ, when you live the way Jesus has encouraged us to live, Right? I mean, you could go through all of them. The way you live financially, 
what you do with your body, your sexuality, all of those things. You don't need to say a word, man. Just show up in the room and watch what happens. You'll start to notice maybe you're not invited to all of the rooms you used to be invited for, and that might not be the worst thing. The truth is, if you live like Jesus, there won't be room a lot of time in the inn for you. I love, the psalmist captured this so perfectly. Check this out. I had never seen this verse before. I wasn't aware of it. I'm for peace, he wrote, but when I speak, they're for war. Oftentimes, I hate to say this, because as followers of Jesus, we misunderstand this message. Because remember, who was it that loved Jesus? Who called him friend? It was, it was the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors. It was all of the people, right, that when the light exposed them, they actually they embraced their brokenness. They acknowledged their need for a savior. They weren't into self-justification. The love that emitted from that light drew them. Whoever rebelled against the light who sought out the darkness, those were the people that crucified Jesus. And who were those people? They were the people that claimed to be the light. Those who thought their actions were good and were right and holy. Those who didn't see in themselves a need for a savior. Those who never felt that Jesus should be, be, be anything but, but a sword for others. Peace comes for the world most oftentimes at the end of a sword. Chris Nye, a writer I read this week, I thought he put it brilliantly. Here's, here's what he said. He goes, Americans tend to think about peace as the absence of conflict. The state of, peace, not, the state of peace, not at war. Peace is an absence of something to us. But biblically, peace, in Hebrew, it's the word shalom, it is the presence of God. It is not the absence of something. It is the presence of something. In Scripture, shalom is the flourishing of humanity in relationship with God. It's about a presence of relationship, the interaction with the Creator, the blessing of His face turned towards humankind. With this kind of radical presence, peace is possible. But at the same time, peace is terrifying. Nearly every time God shows up, his, uh, his, people fall flat on their face as though they're dead. God's peace is devastating. It's, it's difficult to swallow. It, it, makes, me, it makes me uncomfortable in, my, in myself. It makes me realize how screwed up I am. His peace, it comes through in the scriptures. Look at it. An earthquake, a famine, blood in the water, a burning bush, frogs from the sky, a pillar of smoke. God's peace is thunderous. How is this actually peace? It's the same question Mary asked that morning at the cross. It's strange. But as you dive deeper into this, we should begin to understand that peace itself requires a kind of suffering and turmoil. Just look at the history of our own country. Look at, look at what happened with apartheid in South Africa. Both required immense nonviolent suffering to see some level of peace. These moments, while leading both countries to better places, and the work is not done yet, it came at a cost. Doesn't this frame Martin Luther's words so brilliantly, by the way? Darkness cannot drive out darkness, but only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. But these things, they don't come without pain. They don't come without the surgeon, without the exposing of light. This is always the case with peacemakers, especially Jesus. History is littered with that truth. Nelson Mandela was jailed, Martin Luther King was shot, and Jesus was crucified. 
We love to claim peace on earth, but mostly what we mean by peace is everybody just kind of acting and getting along. This is why we all go, why can't it be Christmas every day? Because Christmas, as we experience, is fake. We're nice to each other for a couple of days, and then, you know, when we go back to work on Monday, if you cut me off on Route 80, I give you the finger, right? It's fake. There's no deep work of transformation. There's no sword in my spirit or soul. I fake it for a couple of days, and then I wonder why it won't last. Which brings me back to Mary and Simeon. Mary is told by Simeon a sword is going to pierce her soul. So after kind of like a communal discussion of what this is going to mean for others, there's a discussion about what it's going to mean for her. The only way to salvation for Mary, too, would be through the sword. This prophecy, of course, was right from this point on in Mary's story, and we'll see it a little bit next week. Mary didn't just, just come under the sword in her relationship with Jesus at the cross. She, it touched her soul many times. This is why that second part of that prophecy for Mary had to be so haunting, and for you and I, because it's not just about the sword for other people. The sword was also for Mary. It was going to expose her. And I think if you and I would treasure and ponder these same words, if we would enter the story, the sword that brings Jesus is, it's for our souls too. If you love Jesus and you have him in your life, a sword is going to pierce through your heart as well. If it hasn't, I encourage you to, to wonder. Because you should experience inner conflict. You should be confused. And sometimes it should, it should come. The internal disconnect should bring great pain. You're, you're going to get things wrong. You're going to get angry with God. You're going to fight with him. Sometimes you're going to fight with yourself. Jesus will never be exactly who you want him to be. I am who I am, God declared to Moses. Jesus would say the same thing to you and I. The sword that pierces the heart has got to pierce our heart too. The sword that pierced Mary's heart must pierce ours. We have to understand who Jesus is and what it really means to you and I. Who we are in that light. A famous theologian, um, J.C. Ryle, here's what he wrote. I love this quote. The child of God has two great marks about him. He may be known by his inward warfare as well as by his inward peace. Have you wrestled with God or is it all just... I mean, honestly, a couple years ago, I, I, I shared some of these stories. Like, when you share the real story of Christmas, a lot of times people don't like it. Like, 15 years ago, I got up and told some of these stories, and somebody actually left and went upstairs and served in children's ministry, and because they're like, well, I just want to talk about Jesus, you know, sweet baby Jesus in the manger. Well, I know. <laughs> but there's no sword there. There's no peace there. It can simply just become a nice story. When you put faith in Jesus, your struggles come to an end, some of them, right? You don't have to prove things anymore. You find a new identity. There's meaning in your life. Suffering takes on a, a, a newfound purpose. You can find true satisfaction and worry, anxiety, fear. They can kind of flee as you find peace in who Jesus is, the Jesus that, that sleeps through the storm. But there are a whole new, a new group of struggles that begin, Ryle would go on to explain it this way. He goes, there are thousands of men and women who go to church and chapel every Sunday, and they call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal record. Reckoned, they are reckoned Christians while they live. They're married with Christian marriage services. They're buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion. 
of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring. They know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity is not Christianity of the Bible. It's not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and his apostles preached. True Christianity, it is a fight. The message of the sword of Simeon, the sword which pierced Mary's heart that day, is the sword which calls all of us to the same thing. It calls us to repent, to change the way we think, to, to turn around from the direction in which we're heading. The sword says that Christi Christians, right, it is not, you don't become a Christian by merely acceding to some theological belief system. It means that you have to allow the light of Christ to expose our dark souls, to allow Jesus in to speak into those places where we're, we're going to, where, where this, it's got to be our way. Where we, where, you know, this is the Jesus that would come along and say, you know, you were bought at a price. You have to acknowledge your weakness that you, that, that you don't want to acknowledge. The sword of Jesus in our own souls, it undermines pride and our self-righteousness. There's no way to get the peace that, you are, that Jesus died to give you that repentance brings without going through the reality of, of that inner conflict. Letting the truth of Christ expose who you and I really are. For Mary, that moment, those moments at the cross, those years that would come, being able to walk through them and find peace would only be able to come as she submitted to God's plan. Mary had to have been angry that day. When Simeon said to Mary, there'll be a sword through your soul, what if Mary had said, well, I don't want a sword through my soul. I'll just take him home then. But just, we're out of here. What if Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that night had said, well, I don't, I don't want a sword in my soul. I don't want to bring peace that way. Where would you and I be? I was here the other night. I got to wrap this up. I was here the other night with our support groups, and I was in the grief share group, and I looked into the eyes of a couple of mothers that had lost their children, and the pain was just so fresh there. And I just encouraged them. I said, I'm, I don't understand this. I know that this wasn't God's will. Maybe in the grand scheme of things, maybe in the grand scheme of things, it's what God allows, but the peace, the path to peace for you is, is the same path that Mary, who also lost the son, must walk. Have you gotten there? The peace that Jesus brings, it comes in an unexpected way. It often comes in an unwanted way, the path of repentance and submission. But again, God never asks for us or from us anything he hasn't already done and demonstrated because there was another parent at the foot of the cross that day. It wasn't just Mary. And peace was coming for him the same way it does for you and I through the sword. Paul summed it up this way. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the story of the coming of the Prince of Peace, friends. It is how there can be peace on earth, and it is how there can be peace in your heart. How much of it did Mary understand at the foot of the cross that day? Certainly not all of it. But you and I have the blessing of the rearview mirror, and so my invitation to you this Christmas is to do this day what Mary did that day, to ponder and to wonder 
to look back and reflect on your life, to see the places of the sword, to allow it to do the work that it needs to do in your heart, the same way it had to in the heart of Mary that day, and to welcome, in spite of the sword, the Prince of Peace into your life, even if he comes bearing a sword. Let's stand and close.